so this is going to be a different kind of lesson. Um, there we go. It look, almost looked like I had the title slide on there twice. But um, So I've given some overview lessons in the past, um, but this is going to be more of a timeline overview. Um, Galatians 4.4 says something that I think is really helpful on kind of the importance of really understanding what the Bible is. I think sometimes with the Bible, um, we can ask the question, well, why wait so long to send Jesus? Why didn't God, you know, as soon as Adam sinned in the garden, why not just the moment after that, Jesus comes, atonement for sin comes, and boom, you're restored. Um, but Galatians 4 verse 4 really points to the fact that God was continuously building and working to send Jesus. And I hope that in the lesson with this timeline, um, to try to demonstrate that the Bible's timeline and the period of time that God allowed to pass until Jesus was not accidental, but was very deliberate. And that God was working through time with deliberate steps that would lead to the world being prepared for Jesus to come and for the church to be established. Um, so we're going to be kind of overviewing that handout, and the PowerPoint slides that I have up here are really going to be the same as what you have on your handout. But this is generally what you have. Um, so there's really 10 events, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. And there's names underneath that associated with those events in that time frame, some loose general dates that kind of give you a sense of maybe like an anchoring point of kind of knowing where you are and the books of the Bible historically underneath that. But I want you to imagine, so if you've been in situations like I have in the past where I've been in situations where I have followed people to a location, whether I'm visiting an out-of-town area or something like that, so I follow someone, so I'm not really like paying attention or maybe I'm driving in the car as a passenger and we get to our destination, and then at some point, I've been in a situation where I need to get somewhere from there, but I didn't actually drive to where we are, and I have no idea where I, where, where I am. And so I don't know where I've come from exactly. I have no idea where we're going. I can recognize my surroundings at least. You know, I can see street signs. I'm not sure what they mean or what's down those turns. And it just ends up becoming a very confusing experience, and I tend to need to turn on my GPS and just rely on that. And I think the Bible is like that for a lot of people, right? You read Hosea and you have, you have no idea where you've come from, where you are in time. You have no idea where this is in relation to what's going to happen ahead. And so you're reading things and you kind of like, okay, I recognize this is English and there's words here I'm somewhat familiar with, but I mean, I have no idea what's really going on. And it ends up kind of becoming a little too jarring to just really immerse yourself in what you're reading. And so the hope of this lesson is to give you a very clear sense that the Bible is a very deliberately interconnected story. And I don't mean story as in something fictitious, obviously. I just mean that it's a series of events that are very deliberately interconnected and that are all very deliberately centered on Jesus and the kingdom that Jesus would bring after his death and resurrection. And I hope that this timeline can be something that you can continue to think about, keep maybe in your Bible, this is something that I like to do in studies with people one-on-one -on -one and just kind of get a sense of where people are and help them know the Bible better. So again, that's, that's the goal of the lesson is just to have a very clear picture here. So I want to kind of separate things out here, talk a little bit more about each thing. So you have 10 events, and you may think like, well, why, why these 10 in particular, right? I think a lot of us have heard of like the 17 time periods, and that's, that's obviously another helpful way of kind of having a clear progression of the Bible story generally, but this is more for just my personal reading of the Bible. At some point, it seemed like really there are 10 times in the Bible where God most directly intervened in very major ways that were very clear shifts in either the world and its totality, the world as a whole, or very clear major shifts with his kingdom. So it starts with creation Obviously, that's the first major event. And then we have the flood after that, where God flooded the world. And then shortly after that, you have Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, where God divides out the kingdoms and then chooses Abraham. Uh, the next major event in relation to the kingdom is things then begin to center on Israel. You have the exodus out of Israel. About 40 years after that, they go into the kingdom of Canaan and they conquer that land. 
And then the next major event is after some passing time, the kingdom is established and unified together. The temple is built under the reign of Solomon. And the next major event, after the, the series of events deteriorate, the kingdom is split. The prophets are trying to appeal with the people to repent. Eventually, the kingdom is completely destroyed and the Jewish nation is scattered. And 70 years after that, the kingdom is then restored. They're brought back to Jerusalem. They rebuild it. And then there's about 400 years of silence, of, of no prophets being directly sent to the nation. And then the king comes, Jesus, the Christ, and then the kingdom of heaven is established. So those are the 10 events we're going to focus on. And I would suggest to you that these 10 events are literally what the entire story of the Bible will center around. Either things are leading into the next major event, or they are very clearly coming from that event. So for instance, when the kingdom is established, from Canaan to the kingdom being established, you have a period where they're coming out of Canaan, but things are progressively working towards the appointment of a king and the unification of the nation. Once that happens, you're working from there, and things are progressing as a slow crawl to the destruction of the kingdom, and the prophets are constantly pointing forward to that. And then after it's destroyed, again, you're working towards the restoration of the Jewish nation again, and then things are speeding forward toward the Christ after that. And these are just some general dates that I personally have just found very helpful, just some loose dates that kind of help you understand how much time is kind of passing here. Um, the Exodus happened about 1447 BC when the kingdom was established. So this would be the period of David. It's about 110 BC and then Solomon concludes his reign at 930. And then the kingdom is completely destroyed. Judah is destroyed in Jerusalem, 586 BC, loosely. And then 536 is when it's restored. They return back, they begin rebuilding. So again, just you know, giving you a general sense that there are time, time frames here. Time is passing. And then we have 10 names. So with each event, there tends to be a very significant figure that is very closely associated with the event. And I hope to show in the lesson how both the events and the figures are actually all reflecting Jesus in very unique and significant ways. But obviously in creation, Adam, the first man, was created and everything was good when it was created. And why is there brokenness in the world Adam sinned and everything by sin broke and deteriorated and God's work of restoring started from there. So without a covenant, things deteriorated very quickly and the world was flooded in Noah's day, but uh, his household was able to be saved in the ark and a covenant was made with Noah. And from there, a covenant was made with Abraham after the kingdoms were divided and languages were split up. Then Moses was the leader of Israel when God establishes his covenant with Israel as a nation at Sinai. And then Canaan, when it's conquered, Joshua is leading the nation uh, into Canaan to give the nation the land they were promised. David is obviously the king that God raised up, as we read in the scripture reading, to establish the kingdom. Now, obviously, Babylon's not a person figure, but the nation of Babylon is very significant in the biblical story because God raised up Babylon to be his rod of vengeance to judge the nation of Israel for their sin. Babylon eradicated Jerusalem, destroyed the nation, scattered it. And then later, Daniel in Babylon, um, we'll read Daniel 9 later, where Daniel leads the way to fulfill God's promise to restore God's people back to the city of Jerusalem. And then obviously Jesus is the figure that fulfills all of these events and he trained up the apostles to then go and spread the message of the gospel to teach, to preach, and to set a foundation for the kingdom of heaven thereafter. And then if you want to open your Bibles to the very beginning, so um, your Bible should have like a table of contents. Um, I know this is really small up here, but it'll be like something like this where you just have a list of your books. Um, it's, it's kind of an introductory thing. So these obviously are not all the books of the Bible. But if you look at Genesis down through Esther, those 17 books encompass the entire timeline of the biblical narrative. The rest of the books after Esther all fit in at some point within those other books of history, mostly from 1 Kings and forward. 
The only exception is the book of Malachi, that last prophet. Malachi prophesied at some unknown time past when Nehemiah, Ezra, Esther, when those happened. Malachi is the final prophet of the Old Testament period before Jesus. So what I have on the board here is from Genesis to Esther in the Old Testament. These are the historical books that tell of the historical narrative of the Old Testament period. And what I've done is I've kind of loosely grouped the events that have happened in the Old and New Testament kind of loosely above where it happens in context of a book of the Bible. So you'll notice Genesis has creation, flood, and the dividing of the kingdoms. The beginning of Exodus, obviously you have the Exodus Beginning of Joshua, the Canaan conquest, kind of somewhere in the middle of First and Second Samuel, the kingdom is established. Really, it's at the end of Second Kings, but I mean, obviously, visual spacing is it's just not possible to like fit it that close together. But at the very end of Second Kings, the kingdom is destroyed, and then obviously Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. That's the period where the kingdom is restored, and then there's a gap there because there's 400 years of silence. There's no prophets being sent after that, and then Jesus comes. Now you'll notice I have in red, there's like a dotted line um, from about 1 Kings to um, the end of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. That's where all of the prophets took place, all the books of the prophets. So you'll notice in your table of contents, Isaiah, after Song of Solomon, Isaiah, down through Malachi. Those are the books of the prophets. And those books all take place in this general period of time that I've lumped together here, right? So not before 1 Kings and not after Malachi, or not after um, Nehemiah, Ezra, except for Malachi, all of those books are contained in that very close time frame there. And then you'll notice I have kind of dotted there, between Exodus and Numbers, the book of Leviticus takes place in a one-month period between Exodus and Numbers, a one-month period. And then between Numbers and Joshua, again, a one-month period is the entire book of Deuteronomy. Leviticus and Deuteronomy is like, they're books of law and teaching. Um, So that's why those are kind of like separated out a little bit. They're within a very small time frame in between those books. So what I'd like to do from here, um, with kind of generally putting that out, is work from the beginning and just try to show you how the Bible is a very deliberate series of events. And I'd like to show you specific sections of the Bible that I hope are not overwhelming, um, that give us a series of deliberate momentum as God is working through this history. And so I'd like to go back and start here with this first period. And I'd like to start with Genesis chapter 3. So if you're still at your table of contents, just a few pages forward. God created everything to be good. Everything is called good by God himself when he creates um, the world and everything in it, all the stars, all the galaxies, mankind. But Adam and Eve, they sin against God, and obviously from there, everything, everything breaks and things are not good, and man is separated from God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is the promise that I don't, I don't think it's too much to say that when Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, in some ways I think Jesus is referring back to this promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, because from this moment forward, God is working to fulfill this covenantal promise. Genesis 3, verse 15. Jesus is talking to the devil here. He says, and I will put enmity, that is separation of hostility. I will put enmity between you And the woman, between your seed and her seed, you shall bruise, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So this is one of the first, or the first, messianic direct promise here. Um, But before this, uh, more direct promise at the end of verse 15, this idea of enmity existing between the seed of the man or the seed of the woman and Satan You see that very quickly with Cain and Abel, right? You remember what happens with Cain and Abel? You have Cain, who did not offer what was pleasing to God, but then you have Abel, a righteous man. And do you remember the enmity, the separation that existed there? That's the story of the Bible. 
is there's constant hostility that is separating God's faithful people from the seed of Satan that's fulfilled in Jesus on the cross. There was, a, there was an enmity ultimately separating, and what God ultimately does through time is he is working to put an end to that enmity and gain victory over Satan. So we constantly see God's people being bruised on the heel, but God ultimately winning the victory, and that, the climax of that is obviously in Jesus. Go forward to Genesis 9. So I think one of the things we see with the flood, before the flood, God made no clear covenant with any single person like he does after the flood. So it's kind of like we're allowed to kind of see, okay, God's working in the world. Obviously, God is trying to reach people in whatever way he can. But I think after the flood, what we see is God rapidly, rapidly making covenants. Genesis chapter 9, verse 9. Notice this. Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. This is God speaking to Noah. Look at verse 11. I establish my covenant with you. Verse 12, God said, this is the sign of the covenant. Look at verse 13. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of a covenant. Look at verse 15. And I will remember my covenant. Verse 16, when the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant. Verse 17, and God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant. So you get an idea that obviously this covenant is very important. And so at Genesis 9, after the flood, now we get to see what it looks like when God begins making more specific covenants with mankind. Genesis 11, God separates all of the kingdoms of the world when they're uniting together and building a tower. They want to make a name for themselves, but in chapter 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And instead of mankind being unified on their own initiative for the pride of their own name, God instead tells Abraham that he will make a covenant with him in verse 2 to make of him a great nation to bless him, to make his name great, and through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 15. This is where I want to begin showing you that there is a deliberateness in time passing and God ordering things in a very purposeful way. Look at Genesis chapter 15. This is in verse 13 and 14. So God is making Abraham promises related to Israel and the Exodus. Verse 13, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. So we have a pretty clear time marker there. God says, how many years? You've got 400 years and your people will be brought out of that nation and I'll judge them. They'll be brought out with many possessions. What we're going to see from here on out is God at each key marker of time is going to then say, well, here's the next dispensation. And here's what you can expect along the time of that dispensation. And there's a conclusion and we're going to see God then carry it from there and create further expectations so that things are clearly laid out and there's a very deliberate understanding of what God is allowing and working towards. Turn to Exodus chapter 12 and we'll start working towards the Canaan conquest now. So Exodus chapter 12. Here's another marker for us in Exodus chapter 12. This is going to be verse 40 and 41. So the easy thing is about this, we're always just kind of turning forward in our Bibles. So obviously, Genesis, Exodus comes after that. Exodus 12, 40 and 41. Now notice this. Notice how this relates to that time frame that God had given to Abraham. Exodus 12, 40, 41. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of that 430 years, to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. All right, so there it is. 400-year period, that's complete. They come out of Egypt. God makes his covenant with the nation at Mount Sinai. I want you to go to Leviticus chapter 26. 
And at the end of that period, God promised to Abraham. But now at the beginning of the period of the covenant at Sinai, God now sets another expectation of context for time. Leviticus 26, God outlines from the very beginning of the nation their entire future. From this point forward, Leviticus 26 is going to be step by step the entire future of the nation. This section of scripture points all the way forward to the time of Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. It's a series of promises that if they're obedient to God, he will bless them. But if they are disobedient, he will methodically attempt to bring them to repentance by disciplining them. Verse 27. Here is the climactic punishment that we see fulfilled in Babylon. Verse 27. Yet in spite of this, if you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you. And I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. Further, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. You will eat. I then will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and heap your remains on the remains of your idols, for my soul shall abhor you. I will lay waste your cities as well and will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your soothing aromas. I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. You, however, I will scatter among the nations, will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. And that ultimately is what Babylon was raised up to do. Now, what I want you to note as well in verse 40, God did not just promise that ultimately what his last resort would be, would be raising up a foreign nation, desolating their land, their city, scattering them. Verse 40, we're going to connect this to Daniel. If they confess their iniquity, so he's saying now that they're scattered, if in that foreign place they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. For the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for its Sabbaths while while it is made desolate without them. They, meanwhile will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So we'll be seeing this come full circle in the book of Daniel. But what we see in the meantime is something that's said at the So Deuteronomy 28 through 30 is a parallel but more detailed expectation of the future. Deuteronomy 30 specifically says when all of these blessings and curses come upon you, what God will first do is by his grace, not by the merit of the nation, but even while using their continuous rebellion, he will fulfill the blessings that he promised. I want you to note this when we get to Joshua chapter 21. These next two periods, God is fulfilling again good promises that despite their constant rebellion, he is going to plant them and establish them as a nation. Joshua chapter 21. So now this is when they've conquered the land of Canaan. Joshua has led the nation in. And look at Joshua chapter 21. Verse 43 through 45. Joshua chapter 21, 43 through 45. I'll try to read nice and loud while the horn is blasting. Thank you, Jason. So verse 43, So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one 
of all their enemies stood before them, the Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. And what that leads us to is the next period of time. Every time God acts, things just, they go downhill. God creates the world, sin goes downhill. Floods the world, restoration, new opportunity with Noah, goes downhill. They're led out of Egypt, everything's good, goes downhill. 40 years in the wilderness, and then the next generation needs to come. They conquer the land of Canaan, book of Judges, goes downhill. And yet, God still establishes the kingdom. Look at 2 Samuel, chapter 5. 2 Samuel, chapter 5, verse 12. And again, just pointing to the fact that God was very deliberately working to fulfill his promises one by one. Nothing failed. 2 Samuel, chapter 5, verse 12. 2 Samuel, chapter 5, verse 12. David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Look forward at 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 23 and 24. This is David praying to God after God had told him that he would establish him in his kingdom forever and raise up one of his descendants to sit on his throne forever. He says in verse 23, And what one nation of the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself and to do a great thing for you and your awesome Uh, you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. For you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. So the period of David, the kingdom is established. It's unified, it's exalted, it's empowered. David is a man after God's own heart, as we read in Acts chapter 13. Now, I want you to go to First uh, Kings chapter 8. First Kings chapter 8, verse 54 through 56. This is now David's son Solomon, where the kingdom was further established as Solomon was a man of peace. God gave him wisdom and prosperity. All the nations in the world were coming to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So it's as if that promise to Abraham in some incomplete but still, you know, fulfilled physical manner, God fulfilled in David and Solomon at least physically what he said he would do for Abraham. First uh, Kings eight fifty four. when Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer, and that's a prayer at the dedication of the temple, and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands, spread toward heaven, and he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, now, remember what Joshua said, and hear this. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses, his servant, or, well, that's the end of the sentence, with Moses, his servant, Um, So you notice again, what Solomon is saying is God has fulfilled everything. Not one word has failed. He's given rest to his people on all sides. So despite the continuous rebellion of God's people, he has still fulfilled both the promise to make them a nation, to give them the land that he promised to Abraham. But then through Solomon, he had given them stability. He'd given them rest. He had exalted them in the sight of all nations. All the nations around them were coming to hear Solomon's wisdom and they were blessing the Lord. But again, things continue to collapse and deteriorate. Very quickly, again, just sin time after time just continues to break the intervention of God. So the kingdom is split and eventually Babylon is risen up to destroy the nation entirely. And I'd like you now to turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. So this one's a little further in, but you've got some bigger books leading there. So once you get to the prophets, you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. Daniel was taken captive by Babylon, brought into Babylonian captivity. God exalted Daniel within the political system of Babylon. And in Daniel chapter 9, 
We're coming full circle to promises made in Leviticus, and we will see Daniel directly reference those promises. So again, a very deliberate period of time has passed, and in Daniel, we're going to read a section of Daniel's prayer. And I'd like to show you that from Daniel, now that we've reached the conclusion of what God said in Leviticus, in Daniel, God will begin to be very clear about the next period of time leading up to the next major event, the Christ coming. First, Daniel chapter 9, 1 through 19. This is going to be a longer reading, but I'd like you to see how Daniel was impacted by his knowledge of what God had said in the past, his understanding of why the kingdom had been destroyed, and how important it was to seek God with a broken and contrite heart as a result. Daniel chapter 9. And remember, this fulfills what God had said way back in Leviticus. Daniel 9, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So just pause Jeremiah had said, so Jerusalem will be destroyed, but 70 years is going to pass before God restores the kingdom and brings them back. So Daniel is reading that, remembering it, verse 3. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servants of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus, notice this, he has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us, to bring on us this great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done at Jerusalem. Notice again, verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, way back in Leviticus 26, all this calamity has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous, with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, we have brought, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day. We have sinned, we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant, to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merit of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. 
So this might sound strange, but this prayer carries with it the success of all that God had done before. This attitude of faith in Daniel shows that although God's people had become more and more rebellious over time, there was a remnant that was becoming more and more faithful, more devoted, more heartfelt in their allegiance. And so God said, if they will make amends for their iniquity and confess what they they had done, I will restore them. You see how Daniel is both humbled by their having turned away from everything God had said, but he's also humbled that God had promised, if you will confess your sin, I will bring you back. Look at verse 20 through 25. This is the response God gives to Daniel. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people, your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. And that, in some ways, um, is the climax of what was said back in Genesis chapter 3, that ultimately someone would crush the head of Satan. And in verse 24, what's revealed to Daniel is, this is reaching its conclusion. God has not given up on his covenant. This is not, you know, somehow thwarting God's plan or, you know, God's not just making it up as he's going along. But where this is leading is transgression will be finished. Sin will come to an end and iniquity will be atoned for. Everlasting righteousness is about to come and every prophecy, every vision is about to be sealed up. Verse 25, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So the 70 weeks thing, um, if you look at 10 verse 1, the third year of Cyrus, David's, or not David, Daniel's prayers in the first year of Cyrus. So, you know, 70 weeks, I think David even would understand this is not a literal number here being given in Daniel. But I think it's the idea that this complete period of time is in front of you and the coming of the Messiah is just on the horizon. You know, like 70 weeks, it's going to pass right by and it'll be here, right? So the next event, shortly on the horizon, God sees it coming and the Messiah will come. Verse 25, more immediately, Jerusalem will be rebuilt. But verse 24, in the future, everything that God had promised is still going to come. And that takes us to the coming of the king in Christ. I want you to actually turn back. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Daniel is given, again, time frame visions. Daniel 7 is one of those time frame visions where he's generally told there are going to be four world power kingdoms, beginning with Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, and then Rome, and then in the conflicts that are going to exist between the righteous and the godly, or the righteous and the ungodly, rather, God is going to set up a king and a kingdom in that time frame. Verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one, like a son of man, was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so Daniel is told what's shortly going to happen is someone is going to come. The Messiah who fulfills all of these things, he is going to come and receive a kingdom where all peoples are going to serve him. And all those things that were said to Abraham so long ago, all of these times that are passing between that covenant and now, one will come and receive a kingdom that will ultimately fulfill those things. And I want you to turn back even further to Daniel chapter 2. That before Daniel 7, before Daniel 9, Nebuchadnezzar had a vision that Daniel interpreted by God's grace. I want you to look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 and 45. So again, this fourth kingdom, which would be the Roman Empire, Daniel is again given a pretty clear time frame, not in Babylon's time, not in Persia's time, not in Greece, but in the time of the Roman Empire. 
In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself, but will itself endure forever. And as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true. Its interpretation is trustworthy. So again, I, I know that's kind of nearly overwhelming. Maybe it is just utterly overwhelming. But the idea is time was passing in a way that God was keeping everything within clear communication. It's not just a random series of events. It's not that God is, you know, without anyone knowing what could possibly be happening is God's acting and then, wow, that's a surprise. And then we have no idea what's going to happen next. And all of a sudden God does some random new thing. And that's, that's not how the timeline is passing. God is giving very clear expectations. Here's where you are. Here's where this is going. Here's what I'm going to do. And we have that from the beginning all the way to the end, ultimately, to the establishing of God's kingdom. So what lessons can we draw from this? So this is, this is really it. Um, just an overview of the timeline and just trying to show that there's a great deliberateness that can maybe help you have more rooted direction when you're navigating the Bible and thinking about it. I'd like to take you to one of my favorite verses that I've used this verse and talked about it so many times in lessons. Luke 24. Um, this, this is it's such a critical insight on where the Old Testament stands in its relation to Jesus. Matthew 24, verse 25 through 27. And this is to think, okay, what lessons can we get from this big picture we have here? Luke 24, 25 through 27. Jesus is risen from the dead. It's not something that everybody is certain of yet. They're hearing about it. And there's two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus appears to them without revealing his identity. And in conversation, they say, you know, that they were hoping Jesus was going to be the one to deliver Israel and fulfill God's promises, but he's dead. They're hearing rumors he's alive, but, you know, they don't really buy it. Here's his response. Verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses, and by the way, Moses, that would include Genesis. Moses wrote the first five books. And with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. There's some things here that I'd like to point out that I hope are helpful with verse 27. But despite any specifics, what I really want you to take away from this is all of this should emphasize that Jesus is astonishing. You know, why did it take so long? When you think about building a house or construction we see around Savannah, you know, they're doing construction on Highway 16 or it intersects with 95. They're doing construction on Veterans Parkway. And you see what they're building and you're like, I have no idea what this is. And you see they're doing just tons of work. There's groundwork they're doing. They're digging under the ground. They're establishing huge stone columns. And they've been working on the Highway 16 intersection for maybe like a year. And I still don't know how that's going to work out, right? But that's, you know, it's all very deliberate and there's, there's a point to each piece of the process and it's the same with Jesus is God is building something. He's building a kingdom. And I want you to think about how the passing of time, it shouldn't make us think, well, why did God do it that way? It should make us slow down and think, this is obviously very important. God can do a lot of things in an instant. He created all existence with words in six days. This took thousands of years. God was building a kingdom that required this amount of time. Because Jesus would come into the world not just to die, but to be understood. And so Jesus would come to live, to teach, to interact. And what God was building was a culture where Jesus could be understood through all these events, where he could have interactions that fulfill these events, where his teaching could fulfill these events, where Jesus' life would encompass the full momentum of everything that he had done before. 
So let's start from the beginning. In Jesus, God has a new creation. And Jesus is our new Adam. He is the new beginning. Just as from one man came sin, so through one man comes life and righteousness forever. Just as the flood destroyed the world in Noah's day, Jesus brought judgment on the world. And no one will be saved except Jesus and his household alone. Just as God divided all kingdoms, but yet in Abraham, through that one man, all nations would be blessed. Through Jesus, the one man, all of God's promises are fulfilled. And just as Abraham was just a man of faith, Jesus, through the simplicity of faith, lived and fulfilled God's whole purpose. Just as through Abraham came an entire nation, God's people, his holy nation, through Jesus came a holy nation. And so Jesus leads his people not out of bondage of slavery to Egypt, but Jesus is the new Moses, leading us out of the bondage of our own sin and iniquity. Just as God made a promise that there's a place where I will give you stability forever, I'll plant you, Jesus leads us on a conquest to conquer sin, to conquer Satan, giving us the victory, giving us stability. Just as David was a king that unified God's people together, ruling in justice and righteousness forever, Jesus is a righteous king, ruling in true justice and true righteousness forever. Jesus, in him, his kingdom is established. Just as the kingdom was destroyed by sin to demonstrate how horrible sin is, Jesus died and was desolated to show the disgusting, depraved, and very damaging nature of sin. And as a result, just as the kingdom was restored and brought back to life seemingly from the dead, Jesus rose from the dead. And just as Daniel led the nation by confessing iniquity and making amends for them and using his position for that purpose, Jesus made amends for our iniquity. Jesus died on our behalf. And it's through amends and atonement of iniquity that the kingdom is restored. The apostles and the early church seeing these things, had such boldness, such love for God. What's the point? Jesus is astonishing. And we should love the Bible. Books of the Bible, they aren't just information. It's not just a history book. But these books were written with the blood, the sweat, the tears of people who loved God and exhausted themselves to write their own little testimony of who the Christ would later be, giving us an anchoring point to have a sense of identity with him. The Bible is a precious book. I want you to look forward to Luke 24, 44 through 47. And this will give us our next lesson. Now he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about, about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Something really simple. Verse 47. Thousands of years thousands of years. God's not delaying. Again, I think it's important to see there's deliberateness in the time. Sin is an enormous problem. You know, you think from our perspective, just forgive the sin. Forgive it. It's gone. You know, Adam sins, son Jesus, forgive it. It's gone. <laughs> it's not the enemy that sin is. It took God millennia to solve the problem of sin. Does that affect you? How do you see sin? Sin is an enormous problem. Enormous. But the joy, God through Jesus, offers a much more significant, exceedingly and overwhelmingly more enormous solution. Sin is an enormous problem. It took millennia to solve that problem. But what God offers is a solution so much greater. It eclipses the problem. Why did this take so long? 
Because God was creating a solution that was overwhelmingly sufficient, right? One last thing. All of this, all of it. Forgiveness ultimately is a part of it, but it's not what it's all about. This is God desperately, desperately sacrificing everything. How many, how many souls do you think in the interim here went to hell? And God sacrificed everything to find a community he could dwell with. I shall be their God and they shall be my people. Something is so broken in our understanding of God when we believe in him but have no sense of desire for the community that he's created. It's a kingdom that he was establishing, not something in isolation. We need to learn to love God's people. And when we don't share a sense of driven passion to serve, to love others, and to unyieldingly attach ourselves to the people Jesus died for, I want to boldly put forward there is something fundamentally deeply broken in our understanding of God. Why did this take so long? Why not just send Jesus after Adam sinned? Because God was seeking a community and it took him a lot of sacrifice to find it, to make it. God loves us. Let's roll on the lesson. Appreciate your attention, and I, I hope I hope this is somewhat helpful. Um, but the invitation is this: that God has done all this work, that we could be forgiven, that we could be in His kingdom, and that we could know Him, be overwhelmed with the power that He exerts to restore us, stabilize us, and protect us. So, if you're here this morning and you want to be a part of God's kingdom, there is no reason to delay. God urges you simply to believe, to repent to put on Christ in baptism for the remission of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God keeps his promises. If there's anything that you need to confess before the church, make right in the presence of his people. Please make it known at this time when we stand and sing our invitation song.